So um, last week we talked about we kind of well we actually kind of ended with Jesus being a refugee child um, in Egypt um, and just the relativeness of that in our thoughts today and um, our current global context. Um, but then when we go to Matthew chapter two, we're going to see Jesus uh, come back um, from Egypt. It says in Matthew chapter two verse nineteen, but when Herod died. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. And so we have another fulfillment of prophecy there, um, referring to the the life of Christ and uh, the promise of his coming as the Messiah, the Savior. Um, So we have that um, happen, and that's going to set the scene here for what we get into in Luke chapter 3. Last week we did the majority of Luke chapter 2, but we left a little bit of homework. At the end of Luke chapter 2, Jesus is a 12-year-old boy, and they go to Jerusalem, the Feast of Passover, and Jesus kind of just goes back off, you know, to the temple and is having these, you know, tremendous um, conversations about who God is and what he's about, and he's kind of, you know, people are, you know, like, wait, he's only 12, and, and he's, you know, knows his stuff, and um, they're surprised by that, but his, um, you know, earthly father, Joseph, and Mary are... Um, a little bit distressed, as anyone would be if their 12-year-old um, is missing for a few days. <laughs> you know, you'd be like, a little bit of like, okay, what's, what's going on here? Where is he? And searching for him. And so it says, they were in great distress, in verse 49, and he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Uh, and so really, Joseph and Mary still have also more to learn about who Jesus is, but then Jesus goes back with them. Um, he's submissive to them. He's obedient to them as his earthly parents. Um, he um, grows into a, a, a man, and that's where we find him here in John chapter 3, as this is mostly about John the Baptist, but we see that John the Baptist and Jesus have both um, you know, gotten significantly you know, older here. You know, 15, 20 years have now passed um, from this uh, scene that we have in um, the end of Luke chapter 2. So as it says in chapter 3, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eritrea, and Theclanius and Lysanias, tetrarchs of Abilene, during the high priest of Ananias, or Annas and Sapphias, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Let's just stop there just for a minute because remember back to the beginning of the book in Luke chapter 1, Luke is writing to this man named Theophilus and he wants him to be certain of all the things that he's heard. And so it seems like uh, this Theophilus is a you know, Roman official and so he would know about these things and could easily verify these things in you know, the history of his you know, own 
government and country. And so, you know, Luke is setting the scene and letting him know this is when this has, you know, this happened and what happens at this time. And so he can, you know, even verify these things for himself if he wants to. Um, and so that's a, you know, part of the reason why Luke is being detailed about who is reigning where and who is governing where. Um, but it also has a little bit to do with, back to the story even of Jesus' birth with Herod the Great being, um, you know, in charge of the area at that time. And Jesus had to flee as a refugee child with his, you know, his parents took him and fled to Egypt because Herod, you know, said all the children two years and younger that are male are going to die and just goes in and starts executing them, you know. And so there is great, obviously, um, trouble and weeping in that area, as you could imagine. Um, and so now when he talks about, okay, now it's, you know, Tiberius Caesar um, is the Caesar, Tiberius is the Caesar, Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, and it says Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee. Now that's Herod the Great's son, um, Herod Antipas. And Herod has, this, has two brothers. One is Archelaus, and he's the one that is more um, severe in his approach, more like his father. Um, and, it, and you don't really want to live in his area um, if you can avoid it. And so that's why you know, um, Joseph takes his family a different way. Um, Herod, you know, the son that's named after Herod, apparently the oldest son, he's a, a little bit softer. He's not a great guy by any stretch of the imagination, but he's not as brutal um, as his brother is. Um, but he also has his own failings. And then it talks about his other brother, you know, Philip. And so one kind of had the area, you know, east of the Jordan, and the other one had the area west of the Jordan um, River, and that's how the territories were divided. Um, it's also interesting here um, that he gives, you know, who the priests are at this time. And you're like, wait a second, high priesthood, there's supposed to be one high priest, and yet we have, you know, Annas and Caiaphas, and it's like, wait a second, why are these two? Well, the Roman government had, dis, you know, displaced Annas and said, you're, you're not the high priest as far as the Roman government was concerned, but the Jewish people still referred to him as that and viewed him that way, even though his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is actually the one who is, you know, fulfilling that role at that time during the ministry of Jesus. And you actually see that come into play at, um, you know, leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus when Jesus is arrested in the garden and they first take him to um, Annas' house and first and then to Caiaphas second. Um, because that's who they really viewed to be the high priest as far as the Jewish people was concerned, but then they had to take him to Caiaphas because that's who the Romans viewed as the one who was in charge of the Jewish people and the Jewish priesthood. So, you know, he's really being detailed about these things, again, for a specific purpose, so that Theophilus can be certain of all the things that he's heard concerning Jesus Christ and can know that his faith is... Um, yes, a faith, but it's a faith that is based in reality and what God has done you know, here on the earth. So that's the point of it all. Okay, so now moving on, we get this. Um, up to this point, John, who we refer to as John the Baptist, different from the disciple who wrote the book of John, or the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and the book of Revelation. This is John the, the Baptist, the one that was prophesied about in Luke chapter 1, 
Um, and it says, the word, in, verse, in verse 2, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now let's remember back, because it's been a few weeks, to Luke chapter 1, the things that were said about him. Zechariah was also a priest in the temple, and he goes in to do his you know, service, and he ends up being there for a long time. But the angel there says to him, in chapter 1, verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. But he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel... Now, check this part out. This is really important. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And if you remember, Zechariah wasn't fully confident and fully believing all that was said. And so God basically makes him mute until John is born and presented on the eighth day in the temple. And then in verse 76 of chapter 1, Part of his prophecy, which is longer than this, but we'll pick up in verse 76. It says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in spirit and and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation or the day of his being made known to Israel. And so all of that prophecy that we saw, you know, back from, you know, 28, 29, 30 years before is fulfilled here in chapter 3. And so that's kind of cool to see this progression And so now let's see what he says. It says, so he's in the wilderness, but he leaves the wilderness. He goes into the region, verse 3. He went to the region all around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance unto the forgiveness of sins. Baptism of repentance unto the forgiveness of sins. Now, what what does that mean, a baptism of repentance? Well, first we need to define the word repent. Like, what does it mean to repent? That's a word that, you know, used to be used more frequently, I guess, than it is today. You know, but what does that word repent really mean? And you don't, you know, there's sometimes with words, um, you know, our vocabularies can change, but what do we mean? What is the concept we're really trying to convey here? To repent means to turn. It's about, you know, it's a 180-degree turn. It's, you know, going one direction and then completely turning around and going the opposite direction of that, to repent, to turn. Um, so it doesn't really matter so much about using that particular word, but we have to certainly convey the meaning that a person needs to turn, to repent, to change. Um, and so it's a, it's a changing of one's heart, one's attitude, one's mind, one's perspective, one's position, one's action from living out what you think, know, feel, and do to living life from God's, God's heart and God's truth. So it's taking you know, the humanism or the human perspective, no matter what belief set is wrapped up with that, with a per- personal, you know, with an individual, 
and going that direction and then coming to God and going, wait, I've got this all wrong and turning from that and going God's direction. And now this baptism, it's a baptism of repentance. We don't need to confuse it with the type of baptism that we practice today. It's different. It's unique strictly through the ministry of John the Baptist. Um, And it was specifically designed to prepare the Jewish people for the public ministry of Jesus. There's a context that's here as John is preparing the hearts of the Jewish people for the Messiah, one that's going to come. And yes, it's already been prophesied that this is going to be for all people. It's going to be for the Gentiles. But it starts here with this people who were always intended to be a light for the other nations, um, but oftentimes didn't get it. And so because they didn't get it, they need to get it. And so they need to repent and to start um, living God's way and seeing things from God's perspective. Um, And so it's designed to prepare the people for the public ministry of Jesus. So this is unique for a particular point in time, you know, in history that doesn't exist today because Jesus has already come and fulfilled his ministry. So uh, this is in preparation for that. Um, Michael will share more on that next week as he's going to, you know, talk about, you know, Jesus is actually being baptized and what that was about and, um, on from there. So let's pick back up here. It's a baptism of repentance, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, verse 4. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. That's powerful. So John you know, quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, um, and he's, you know, can, he's, sorry, he doesn't quote from that. Luke quotes from that to describe what John's role was and what he is you know, doing, that he is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And it's interesting that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all refer back to this passage of Isaiah referring to John the Baptist. They all recognize it. Even though, you know, it's, it's a lot of times in the Old Testament, especially, you have prophecies that have like a near fulfillment, something current to that context, and then a fulfillment that's later on with the true, like, big spiritual picture. It's like a, it's like a bigger meeting. And so this idea was the, you know, exiles, those who had been sent away from um, Israel and deported throughout Babylon, the, you know, the empire at that time, coming back. And God making a straight ways and making opportunity for them to come back to their land. Uh, but here, clearly, all of them recognize, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all recognize that the, the big fulfillment of this is John the Baptist. That he, he's the bigger picture of it all. Uh, because he is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path you know, straight. And it's really at a high degree that this is done. You know, in, the, in this day and time, when a very important person was coming through, a Caesar, a king, you know, an important official, people would go on the roads before that person's you know, cart and you know, horses and everything, and they would make sure that the paths were clear and that the you know, things that were washed out you know, by rain you know, were filled back in. Rocks would be, you know, they'd come onto the path or, you know, falling down a hill or whatever, we moved out of the way to make that path as smooth and as you know, easy to travel on 
for this important person. And so that's the idea that's behind this, but it's to a much greater degree in the spiritual terms because it's talking about the preparation for Jesus. And it even says the, you know, these barriers, the valleys will be filled and the mountains and hills shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight. And you can't really, practically speaking, do that with roads. You know, I mean, the, Roman, the Romans were amazing in their ability to build roads, especially considering you know, they didn't have you know, the internal combustion engine. They didn't have motors and cranes. Yet, well, they kind of did have cranes, but that's another story. But they didn't have motors on those cranes. You know, it was people and animals that they used. And the stuff that they were able to build is mind-boggling. But they could, you know, there were limitations. And here there aren't limitations on the spiritual end. Like whatever mountain of barrier it is that can keep somebody from knowing God can be removed. Whatever valley it is that needs to be filled in that person's life for them to know God can be filled. And that's awesome and powerful to, to think about and to consider. The crooked shall become, places shall be made straight and the rough places shall be made level. And all the flesh, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So again, we have throughout the book of Luke, yes, Israel, but not just Israel. For all flesh, for all peoples. For, for every ethnicity, for all, all, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So this is what he did. He went around and he is, you know, preaching this message to the people. And we're not told exactly how long he does that, but, you know, to go to all these different towns and places, you know, had to take some months or some time to, to accomplish um, because he's going all around the region of the Jordan, and it's, a, you know, it's kind of a significant geographical area. And so in verse 7 it says, Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brutal vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Let's read through verse 9. Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones, and even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, you, you know, I kind of look at this, and especially verse 7, you, you kind of scratch your head a little bit, you know, as you first look at it, because it's kind of a funny statement by John when he says, you know, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Well, well, John, um, kind of you did, because you were out there preaching to us and telling us about that we needed to repent. And something big is happening here. We're not sure exactly what it is, but you've got our attention, and you've called us out here. You know, God warned them through John. Kind of, you know, obvious there, but then, he, but then he tells them, you know, you're a brood of vipers. You're a bunch of snakes. And who warned who you to flee from the wrath to come? I mean, it sounds so incredibly harsh. Sounds harsh. And, you know, it's one of these messages that I, I don't know that too many, you know, seeker-sensitive churches that are very popular and common today are going to preach out of Luke chapter 3. We don't want to offend people and don't want to, you know, make people feel uncomfortable and certainly don't want to begin with, hey, you bunch of snakes, 
who, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come. You know, that's, that's not going to be a typical, you know, message if you're just trying to, uh, you know, appeal and be very gentle with a bunch of people. But I, I actually, as we go through this, I want you to consider that this is one, if not the most, one of the most seeker-sensitive messages that you'll find anywhere ever. It is. And I'm going to hopefully show that to you this morning. Because the first thing, the first thing he does is he deals with reality. And if a person is going to move towards God in a positive way, reality must be dealt with. Who are you before God? If you don't have God, or if you just think that you have God, but you don't really have God, who are you really? And what are the implications of living life not really having God? What are the implications of that? Well, he's, and he's saying this to the multitudes. Let's keep that in mind. Not just the religious leaders here who we can often rightly point the finger at as hypocrites. I mean, he's pointing to the masses and saying, you're a bunch of snakes. Now, for these people who are religious... That's a wake-up call to wait. Who, who am I? What really? What is my identity? And that there is a wrath to come. There is a future judgment. Again, dealing with reality. Because I would argue that it's not sensitive to people to first not acknowledge where what their true reality in their life is, one, and B, not to mention the, the potential implications of that in the future in terms of God's judgment. That it's not sensitive to that person, it's not very loving to that person to withhold the truth and the reality that is God's reality. Not reality as we would want to define it or as we would want it to be, but as it is before God, the one who ultimately has the final say on everything. And then he says this, verse 8, and again, remember, this is all preparation. This this whole thing is preparation for Jesus, and Jesus is salvation, his, his, his thing here is to really prepare them for Jesus and prepare them for salvation. We need to keep that in mind. But, but he says, bear fruits worthy of repentance. So he's saying, you know, don't just say it. Live it. It's not enough just to have the words. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. So what he's doing there is he's, he's taking away this foundation, foundational trust the people had in their heritage. They were standing, you know, they were standing on Abraham and saying, we have Abraham as our father, therefore we are good to go. We are God's people. We are God's chosen ones. We are okay. 
because of our lineage. We have Abraham, we've got the temple, we've got the scriptures, we've got the prophets, we've got Moses. You know, we've got all these things that we can stand on and we can, you know, we can hang our hat there and say, we're, we're good before God. And what John the Baptist says, everything that you were trusting in to save you, won't save you, can't save you, isn't adequate. Because what you were trusting in, he, he, he said, you know, God doesn't value that. Ultimately what he's saying is God doesn't value that the way you value that. That's what he's getting at there. God doesn't value that the way you value that. And then he says this, he says, God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. It's like, don't forget who you're talking about here. You are talking about God, the creator of all things, who spoke the entire universe into existence. And he can speak, he can take those stones literally and speak to them and they become human beings. Like, that's not outside of God's power. He is able to do that. And so don't think that in some ways, he's kind of humbling them as a people. And again, remember the context and the high view they, they had of themselves as Israelites. And he's basically saying, you're actually replaceable here. And it's again, it's something that they were trusting in that's got to be taken away. And this is what has to happen in a person's life. Everything that a person is trusting in that isn't really God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, you know, the triune God... Everything a person's trusting in outside of him really has to be stripped away in order to really come to Jesus and say, you're all I've got, I need you. That really has to happen. Otherwise, what we end up with is the common message of today of, you know, you're really good and you're an awesome person. And if you just, you know, if you just had Jesus and added Jesus into the awesomeness that you already are, you'd be like super awesome. That's the message that's common today, as opposed to actually, you're you're not awesome, and you're desperate for Jesus. So it's a change in perspective there. In verse 9, he says, And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So basically he's saying judgment you know, is near. There, there's going to be a price to pay if you are, are not truly gods. And he wants to take away this illusion that they are. And that's, one of the, again, one of the, 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 the biggest issues for people today, especially in our cultural context here in the South, is you know, there's just so many people that are under the illusion, just like... These Israelites were. They're under the illusion that they're okay with God because they have this Christian heritage. And they can name a particular denomination or a particular church that their you know, families you know, been a part of for, for generations. And the trust can end up being there instead of on Jesus. And that's a really dangerous place to be. So you have to ask yourself this morning, what, what am I really trusting in? Am I trusting in Jesus Christ, in him alone? And that's, I mean, that's where my trust really is. Because I'm going to, you know, we, you know, Jesus has already been here, right? 
We have the whole of the scripture. So I have to keep that in mind as we're just going through Luke chapter 3 and in this preparation for the public ministry of Jesus that we understand Jesus has come and he has died and he has rose again and we have the fullness of the message. <laughs> that Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus doesn't say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life and the way to come through me is through X denomination or through calling yourself a Christian or through any sort of ritual thing that you have done in your life. He says, no one comes to the Father but through me. And so that's the question you really have to ask. Is it really just, is it Jesus? Or is it these external things that so many will trust in? And so what I'm going to contend again is that this is a very seeker-sensitive message because the people here are coming, and many of them are sincere in seeking the truth and seeking God. But in order to have that, they have to have, again, they have to come to it on God's terms, not their own terms. And so their understanding kind of gets turned on its head. That's where that repentance comes into place. They have to start, stop seeing it how they were seeing it. They were just good because of their religious traditions and understand that that's not sufficient. That's not going to cut it. And you see how the people responded, and this is awesome in verse 10, so the people asked him saying, what shall we do then? You see, our fear is that when we tell people how it is, you know, the truth, even doing so in love, our fear is that people will be like, well, I don't want to hear that. And they won't listen anymore, we'll scare them off, or whatever it is that we're afraid of is going to happen in that situation. Well, I think there's a couple things that we need to consider with that. Well, let's go the other direction with it. Let's just go hypothetically. What if all the people walked away from John the Baptist and say, too much for us? We don't want this. What if that is the response of the people? Well, I would argue that John the Baptist still did the right thing because he was obedient to, the God, and he, to God and he loved the people enough to tell them the truth. And are we okay with it if the results of telling the truth in love are not what shall we do then, but are, you know, a bunch of curse words toward us, person walking the other direction? Can we handle that? That's not our desired outcome, obviously. And, as, and, and I'm always trying to remind us back here about making the straight pass for the Lord. We're not... We don't ever want to be like, oh, let me just see how offensive I can be. I don't think John the Baptist is doing that here. And you have to remember his context as well, and he knows where the people are and spiritually as a, as a whole. He's very aware of their mentalities and how they're thinking. He doesn't come at them with something that's completely irrelevant or completely you know, misinformed with their thought processes and, and where they are. He's accurate with them. And that truth ends up resonating with them. And, and so whenever you're going to, you know, I would just give a whole lot of caution before saying, hey, you snakes, or something like that. You know, I mean, like you really have to know that being led by the Holy Spirit and understanding that this is what God wants and what's appropriate in 
this time and in this place. What I, and we've all seen, you know, the, the preachers that, you know, out on the streets that only give the, you know, the hellfire and brimstone and it's not in the right context and it's a lot of times not even the right information and that it does a whole, that does a whole lot more harm than good. I'm not advocating that we all, you know, run all over, you know, University of Georgia campus and downtown, you know, putting up, you know, ladders and standing on them and, you know, screaming at people. You know, we're not advocating that. But what I am saying is, are we afraid to tell people the truth? And if we are, we've got to change our mentality about that. I think many times we are afraid to tell people the truth. And so we soften it to the point where it doesn't have any oomph behind it at all. And that's a problem. And that's a problem. A lot of times the problem the problem is, is us and what we're willing or not willing to do. But notice how the people responded. What shall we do then? And John the Baptist is very practical. He answered them and said to them, He who has two tunics or two shirts, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. It's like, wait, I'm not sure I was expecting that. Were you expecting that? You know, in in the message that he gives here, I mean... There's a lot of things he could have said. And he says, be generous to the poor. You know, in a nutshell, be really generous to the poor is what, like, if you have, share with those who don't have. Now, again, context wise, it's always been true that the, you know, uber wealthy have uber wealth. I mean, this was true in this time as well. I mean, you, if you had walked into Herod the Great's palace, I mean, you, today, I mean, if you had seen, if you could see it in all that it was today, you know, we would be like, wow, that's impressive. That's some serious material, you know, wealth. But for the average, you know, people, it was, you know, we got to put food on the table every day. And I think the average people looking at, you know, our closets would be shocked. You know, they'd be shocked at the amount of clothing and the number of a pair of shoes and, all of these things have, and they're like, um, how much can, of this can you wear at one time? You know, that would be kind of their mentality about it. You know, they would, in coming, you know, if you transported them here, I mean, probably a lot of them, you might, you might have people having heart attacks, you know, just looking in the average person's closet. They'd be like, whoa, this is normal? You know, walking to the grocery store and all the abundance, you know, of food from all over the world that's in all of our stores. I mean, it's really incredible when you think about it. You can walk into most any grocery store in this town and get things that aren't in season and are grown all over the world. It's not one store that has those things. Like, almost all of the stores have those things. And that's kind of mind-blowing. Because only the elite, of the, the elite would have stuff that came from, you know, sitting there in Jerusalem, would have stuff that came from India and from the Himalayas and from China and from Spain, you know, you would really have to be a, a person of means. Obviously, things have changed in you know, a much more globalized world. Um, you know, and this isn't, 
a message. I don't, I don't want to. It's like I, it's, it's a it's a conflicted thing because I don't want to condemn us, but I don't want to let us off the hook easy either. You understand what I'm saying with that? Like, I, you know, I don't want us all just like, man, we're terrible. And we don't do anything right. But I also don't want us being like, oh, I'm fine, and I don't have to change a thing. And I can just, you know, I can just keep on doing what I'm doing, and it's okay. I don't want us to have that either. And so, please, you know, hear my heart on that. That is, it's an attempt to be, to be balanced. But it's, you know, it's an attempt to also be truthful with myself and the con- conviction of myself. Because what do I have that's just wasteful? That's just stuff that I don't even use. I mean, I've got, I've got shirts in my closet I haven't worn in two or three years. Like. Doesn't fit right, don't like how it looks, whatever. Don't wear it. Well, why is it sitting there in my closet? Not doing any good for anybody. You know, it's just something that we need to we need to be thinking about these things a little bit more. But in that, I don't want to get caught up just in clothing here because I really think that the principle he's getting at is if you are a follower of God, you're going to be a generous person. And if you're not a generous person, probably you're either one of two things. You're either not a follower of God or you're not very mature as a follower of God. And that's kind of a statement there that's significant. Wouldn't you say? That if you're not a generous person, there's either a lack of knowing God in the first place or a lack of maturity in that walking with God. Because God's people, by definition, has become mature believers, as you th- see throughout the scriptures, are generous. That's just one of the characteristics. It's one of the things that lets the world know that God has changed your life, is that you're a generous person. <laughs> so if there's a lack of generosity, if there's a greed, if there's a selfishness, if it's me, 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 then that's an, that's a, an indicator that there's a need for, there's a, a minimum a need for repentance from changing one's heart and mind on, that, on those things, saying, God, let me see it how you see it. And let me be a generous person. Help me to be a generous person. So the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Because at this time, you know, especially these, the Israelites who were tax collectors, they were collecting taxes for who? For the Roman government. Well, how did they put extra money in their own pockets? Well, you know, the, the Roman government says you owe 100, but I'm going to tell you you owe 150. Well, what's going to happen to that extra 50 in the pocket, right? So that's what they did. And they were, you know, they were viewed at as not the best people, a lot of times as traitors. Their friends were usually the shadier characters in the community. And so Jesus hung out with them. Don't, you know, we're kind of looking forward a little bit. But what does he tell them? He's like, hey, if, if you're going to show that you've changed, prove it by being honest with what you collect and not being greedy and not cheating people. Like having ethics and integrity. So again, we come back to this thing. If you are a follower of God, you're going to have integrity in your life. If there's not integrity then that means either not a follower of God or not mature in that following of God, right? If there's not an integrity, if there's a willing to cheat and to take advantage of other people, that shows something is seriously wrong in one's heart and mind. 
according to God's, you know, ways. And so, you know, so what do we have so far? It's like, well, followers of Jesus, or in this case, I mean, we're just going general because, again, John's preparing, but I can move past that because we have more. We have Jesus. So we can say followers of Jesus are going to be generous and ethical. That should just be very standard. There shouldn't be something that's like a surprise. It should be well known in any community. Hey, followers of Jesus are generous and they're ethical. So, you know, when people go out to, you know, eat and we can debate whether we should or not, not here to do that this morning, but going out to eat, if you go to restaurants, you know, in the community, it should be known, here come the followers of Jesus. They're coming from their meetings of worship and we are excited that they decided to come to our restaurant because we know they're going to be really nice to us. They're going to be respectful. They're not going to be so demanding and arrogant. They're humble people, and they're going to leave us really nice tips. Like, yes! Like, followers of Jesus have come into our restaurant. And many times through, I mean, just... That's not the reputation Christians have. It's not the reputation Christians have. It's like, here come the very demanding people who are not going to give us very much and may leave us just some religious information instead of a tip. That should never, that should never happen. should never be the case. Should never be the case, and so again, you know, the, the thing that I look at it and goes, I, I say one of two things: either Christians aren't Christians, or Christians aren't mature in their. I mean, as a whole, like taking big picture, Christians aren't Christians, or Christians aren't mature in following Jesus. It's kind of one of the two. I don't have, I don't, I can't really find other other options outside of that, especially in the current. I mean, even in the current economic environment, can't find options outside of that. So what do we, you know, these things are speaking to us and to our culture and to our, you know, generations here, especially in the southeastern part of the United States today. These are, this is a relevant, a relevant message for us. Like we said to the soldiers saying, and what shall we do? So he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. So basically, the, the bigger overarching thing here is don't misuse your power. Don't abuse your power. So followers of God are humble and don't abuse their positions of power when they have them. All those things should be consistent, should be stuff that the world knows about because Jesus even said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, Matthew five sixteen. That should be pretty standard. Followers of Jesus are known for being the most humble, most generous, most ethical people on the planet, bar none, like not debatable, like objectively not debatable. Should be just really, really clear on that. And this really lines up, you know, if we want to have a post-Jesus messages that line up with this, you can read the book of James. 
because Book of James, his his point is really, you know, God sees, you know, what's in your what in your heart and knows the truth that others cannot see, right? You know, he's not talking about faith the same way that the Apostle Paul talks about faith when he talks about just that, you know, that vertical relationship between you and God, and God knows whether your faith is genuine and real or not. He, he's what James is talking about is on that horizontal plane as we deal with other human beings and whether they know we are people of faith or not. And how do they know? By watching our lives. They know it by how we talk and the things that we do and how we treat the poor and all these things. And James addresses all of that and really lines up well with this message. You know, homework for this message would be read James. Read the book of James. In one sitting, in one go, just read the book of James. And it's talking again, keeping in mind that horizontal, this is how other people we should be relating to and other people should see us in this fashion. All right. Now let's move forward. Verse 15. Now as the people are in expectation and all reason in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Okay. You know, John, the scripture tells us, even Jesus says that John was a great person, and the reason John was a great person is because he was obedient to God. I mean, that's informative for us. We need to be obedient to God. But he had such an impact that people were wondering, is he the Messiah? Is he the one we've been waiting for? Is he the Christ? Is he the anointed one? Is he it? And he's like, listen, I'm so far below the one who is the Christ, one who is the anointed one. I'm not worthy to loosen the strap of his sandal to like take his shoe off. I'm not worthy to do that. It's amazing to me that Jesus took the bread and took the cup with his disciples and he stoops down and washes their feet even though they weren't worthy to loosen the strap of his sandal. You see the humility of Jesus and the love of Jesus and that he did that for them on the night that he was betrayed and the night that he you know, showed them to take the bread and take the cup in remembrance of him. He washed their feet. And he went to the cross for them and died for them and for us. And so when we come to Jesus, this really, we should be in awe because we should say, Jesus, you know, we are not worthy to even bow down before you. And yet, he went to the cross for us. Like, that, I mean... That should cause some awe and wonder and some and a real dose of humility in our lives. Because we see God's great love in that. And but we need to have the same perspective that John the Baptist had. We don't need to have this perspective of, you know, that that, that just kind of flippantly takes Jesus and takes him for granted. You never take Jesus for granted. He's God. 
he's the savior. He's the Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the one who died for us and who rose from the dead. And he's the one who has power in his name to give life. We should never take him for granted. But I'm sad to say that we do. We do take Jesus for granted. And it's obvious. And I'm not saying all the time. But there are certainly days in my life where you can look and go, man, Chet, you really take Jesus for granted today. Like, how could you? You know, and got to grab hold of reality here. This perspective that John had, so good and so true. We need to understand, verse 17, you know, he, he's going... It says in verse 16, he's going to baptize with Holy Spirit and fire. And it's interesting. I've had people use that verse and, you know, try to use it in this way of like, you know, Jesus is going to give you the fire using this verse. And I'm like, wait, let's read verse 17 to understand the context. This isn't the type of fire you want here. Not in, not this one. Because he's talking about wheat and chaff and this is what people would do, you know, in their their threshing floors. You know, they would have this place where they would beat out the wheat and the wheat, the grain is heavier, and the chaff would blow over, and so they take the wheat and they'd gather it up, and that's you know the good stuff, that's the food that they would have for the future. So they're gonna make their bread out of. And then they would take the, the chaff and they would collect it and they would you know burn it up because why? It was not good for anything. Couldn't feed anyone with it. I mean, it was not even good for animals, really. I mean it was nothing so that's the picture we have of what Jesus is going to do now it's really a second coming view here which again lends us to the type of seeker sensitive message that tells the truth to people like hey you know we don't know how much time we have in order to know God and to be right with him we really need to consider the future and who God is and who Jesus is and what he's going to do. Verse 18, and with many other exhortations he preached to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, and above all this, above all, and added to this above all, that he shut John up in prison. We read Mark 6, 17 through 20. It said, For Herod himself has sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Now, that's really, really interesting in this whole context because, again, you have a guy who, you know, as the Scripture tells us, has done a lot of evil, yet he knows John's different, and he recognizes that. And he recognizes, though, that even though John is telling him that he's wrong and that he's wrong and his wife hates the man, yet he's attracted to it in some way. And isn't sure what he should do with it, but knows that some of this is, at least knows some of this is true and it's good and I need to respond to it. 
yeah, we, we, there's more to that story that's given later. You know, we have a partial spoiler alert, but, you know, here we go, you know, with it. But, you know, what had happened, and, and this goes, one of the reasons why Luke, in the very beginning of chapter 3, is telling you about who's where and who's related to who and these things in the Roman government is because, you know, he had, he had told Herod, what you have done is wrong. Your brother Philip was married to this woman, and you being the great guy that you are, took her from him, your own brother, and married her. I mean, there's some family dynamic problems there, right? I mean, there's some, there's some issues. There's some issues. But he calls it what it is. He said it's unlawful, it's sinful, like you shouldn't do this. And my understanding of it is that it wasn't just unlawful in the Jewish government, but it was unlawful in the Roman government as well. And so he's kind of holding him to what, this is what you know, we've agreed upon. It's right and good, and you're, you're violating these things. And ultimately, you know, his standard is God's standard. And so for a man to basically steal his brother's wife is a terrible thing to do, and John's not afraid to say it. That's insane. Because here's the deal. In, in our context, we are fortunate to live in a country where you can say anything you want to say about any one leader or otherwise. You can say any, any president we've had, you are free to put, you know, whether you like, I mean, you know, whatever party you are, whatever, whatever you are, you know, there's been a president in the last number of years you haven't agreed with on everything, right? And you've been free to put on your Facebook or to yell out in the street or whatever, I don't like this person, this person's an idiot, this person, whatever. You know, you've been able to do whatever you've wanted to do on that. That's not the normal human experience throughout history. I mean, it's a unique thing, and it's a, it is a privilege that we have, it's a, you know, that we can disagree with those who rule over us. In this context, you disagree with someone in a slight way. They can just go, you know, um, you're not a Roman citizen. Your head's gone. If you are a Roman citizen, I'm just going to pay these guys over here to lie about you, and then your head's gone. You know, I mean, it's either way your head's gone. It's really simple for the, you know, these people in power of how they're going to deal with Something like this. And John, knowing this, is bold enough to Herod, and I think really out of love for Herod, to tell him that he's wrong. Knowing that Herod has the power just to say, you're dead. (coughs) And he's dead. But there's another thing that John the Baptist knows that's greater than that. It's that Herod only has the power to say, you're dead. God allows him to do it. He knows whose hand he's ultimately in. And he's okay with that. And that's something for us to consider. Because it would be pretty easy at this point in our political you know, context and election year and all this stuff coming up to take this as a you know, well, you should be very outspoken about your disagreements and all these things. And that's a conversation for another day. This right here has to do with risk 
and who do you trust? That's the point that I have for it for us today. Because actually, I think that's the bigger point in our context, because we don't have so much to lose on that end. Currently speaking, people aren't going to come to your house and chop your head off because of what you posted on Facebook about any presidential candidate. So it's really not a big deal in our context. But it is a big deal of who do you trust and who are you trying to please and are you willing to tell the truth even when the truth is not easy to tell. And that's really the heart of this message that I think that John had for the people then and that's the heart of it for us today. Are we going to have a bold humility in our sharing the truth with people? And I want to put those things together because God's called us to boldness and he's called us to humility. He's not called us to either or. He's not called you just to be bold. And he's not called you just to be humble. He's called you to be both. Romans 1 was Paul say, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? Because the power of God into salvation. And that's why he's not ashamed. There's power in that message and people need that message. We also know the scripture tells us that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Well, I don't think God wants prideful people in their hearts, people that are prideful in their hearts, that aren't humble, going around being bold about sharing his message. Why? Because that undermines the message. Because then it becomes about you as an individual or me as an individual and not the message and person of Jesus Christ. So that's why we have to hold those things together at the same time, boldness and humility. And if we do that, I think we'll have a really big impact around people, you know, the people around us. But if you have only one and not the other, it's not sufficient. All of that has to be wrapped up in love. Love God, love people. That's what drives John. It's his love for God first and his love for people second. And it's got to be what drives us as well. But those are some things that really inform us character-wise and approach-wise. A bold humility. I have a, friend, a dear friend of mine who's working in a very dangerous place and has his children there. And that's, you know, that's my prayer for him. Because if he's not bold and his family's not bold with the gospel, there's no point in being there. There's no point in taking all that risk unwilling to tell people what they need to hear. He's already taken a great risk. But don't, you know, the key thing for him is don't succumb and to be humble about it so that the people will under, you know, connect there with that humility. So necessary. But the same thing that's true for him in a place where he literally could lose his life and his family could lose their lives today, like it's a very real possibility. But the same thing, the same approach that he needs, we need here in our context. And without it, we're just spinning our wheels. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and praise you. And we thank you for your goodness to us. And Lord Jesus, um, we just say to you this morning, we're not worthy to touch your sandals. We're, We're not worthy for anything. 
related to you. But Father, by you, your grace, you have made us so. You have made us just before you through the blood of Jesus. You've called us to be your ambassadors, to be your people, to be loving and humble and bold, and you've called us to share your goodness and your message with all of its truth and not pulling punches and not holding back, not withholding our hearts from people. And so, Lord Jesus, as we take that bread and that cup and remember you as you instructed us to, fill us with your love, Fill us with your boldness and fill us with your humility, Jesus. Help us, we pray. In your precious name, Jesus, we pray.